welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Welcome to Awaken. My name is Jenna, if we haven't met. I'm the executive pastor here. Uh, Special welcome to you if you are visiting or new. We are very glad you are here. And if you are interested in in connecting at Awaken at all, uh, we would love that. Uh, If you go online and fill out a connection card, someone on staff will contact you. We would love to take you out for a beverage of your choice, go on a walk, a Zoom call, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, For those who give at Awaken, just a reminder that that giving can be done online, and thank you for that. I want to just say a couple things to orient you to the space this morning. Thank you for wearing masks. We greatly appreciate uh, you accommodating that. Um, For kids in the room, we are very glad you're here, and parents, we're glad they're here too. If at any point during the gathering you have to sneak out at all and give a little space, the nursery is open and not staffed, and then the twos and threes room downstairs is open as well. Um, I think that's it. Uh, For a call to worship this morning, um, Mel and the band are opening with a song that was based on Psalm 104, inspired by that psalm. And so I very creatively thought, well, why don't I just read a portion of Psalm 104 um, as we begin worship this morning? And part of what is in that psalm is a commentary on the power of God and the power of nature. Um, And so acknowledging uh, all of the things happening in nature right now and the ways that it impacts humans, I found the psalm... um, compelling, intriguing, uh, and would invite you into the same thing. Um, So would you please stand? And as I read these words, I'd like to invite you um, to close your eyes and just picture and let these words and the Spirit um, lead you for just a moment. Um, So receive them. And the water flowed down the mountains and through the valleys to the place you prepared. Now you have set boundaries so that the water will never flood the earth again. You provide streams of water in the hills and valleys so that the donkeys and other animals can satisfy their thirst. Birds build their nests nearby and sing in the trees. From your home above, you send rain on the hills and water the earth. You let the earth produce grass for cattle, plants for our food, wine to cheer us up, olive oil for our skin, and grain for our health. Our Lord, your trees always have water, and so do the cedars you planted in Lebanon. Birds nest in those trees, and storks make their home in the fir trees. Wild goats find a home in the tall mountains, and small animals can hide between the rocks. You created the moon to tell us the seasons. The sun knows when to set, And you made the darkness so the animals in the forest could come out at night. Lions roar as they hunt for food you provide. But when morning comes, they return to their dens. Then we go out to work until the end of day. Our Lord, by your wisdom, you made so many things. The whole earth is covered with your living creatures. Amen. sing for you every week because we want you to know that 
shameless plug slash commercial right now. Um, we are planning something. Um, Jenny and I are actually Jenny on drums today. Jenny on the drums. That should be your new band name. Yeah. Um, we are deep in planning for uh, the artist retreat that's coming up October 1st and 2nd. And I just I haven't been as excited about something um, as I am excited about this for a while. We were talking about uh, where do artists need to be met right now, and we thought about the last, you know, year and a half, two years, and we're like, it's been a little, little rough time for so many people, and we feel ungrounded, you know, and we are um, hungering for, like, a renaissance of art. Like, what, how does this happen? How do we recapture ourselves as artists, as creatives? Um, so we're going to gather here at the building the Friday night, October 1st, all day Saturday, and we're going to hear from an art historian who's a part of our community about um, what has happened in history when you know, things have happened like this and chaos has happened. How have artists responded? Um, we're going to do some like embodiment work together, some yoga stuff together. We're going to do some like therapeutic poetry exercises. Um, it's just going to be really fun. So if you're an artistic person, um, you don't have to call yourself an artist. I know that that's kind of a tricky term for people sometimes. So if you're creatively bent in any way and you want to hang out with other creatively bent people, it's like $25 for like a huge weekend of really fun things. And Micah with them might be mixing drinks for us. So you don't want to miss that. <laughs> but go on the website uh, and register for that. I would love to hang out with you too and get to know you the artsy people out there. Um, end of shameless plug. <laughs> All right. Well, friends, as we come back together, um, I just had a couple of things that I wanted to pass on, things that are happening at Awaken in the next uh, month or so. Uh, first, we have a learning lab coming up. So this will be uh, Sundays in October via Zoom for three of them and then in person for the last one. For those of you who maybe don't know what a learning lab is at Awaken, um, usually every quarter we will host a conversation um, surrounding a number of topics, but our fall one is on mental health and spirituality. I'm not sure there is a more fitting time um, to attempt to have that conversation and we will have three of our own therapists um, who attend Awaken facilitating discussion around that and presenting on some really interesting things. So if you are interested in participating in that, you can sign up on the website. Um, next Sunday, September 19th, we are bringing back scripture circles. So for those who are maybe new, scripture circles is what we say for like Bible study. Um, we partner with 40 Orchards, an organization that facilitates um, in a number of communities conversation around scripture. Um, it's very question-based. You really do, in my experience, get to bring those honest questions. And this year, we're doing it a little different, um, where we are teaching and centering on the question of what, what is justice? How does it show up in scripture? So that will actually be through the year. Um, so again, third Sundays, uh, we change the time, 6.30 to 8.30. And that is also on Zoom can register online to get the link. Um, and then finally, coming up Monday, September 27th from 7 to 8.30 p.m., um, we are hosting an Enneagram event. So it is entitled, I need to read from my notes for this one. 
The power of questions and the Enneagram, how do we invite our best selves to awaken? Um, so Jane, who leads spiritual formation here, is bringing in a woman named Debbie Horton uh, to be facilitating that conversation. Uh, it will be wonderful. She is very brilliant uh, in the Enneagram. Uh, that registration, sign up by September 23rd on the website, and that will likely be here in the sanctuary. Um, and then finally, just a brief mention to families. Next week is our fall kickoff. Uh, for kids, it's going to just be like a little event as we're not opening kids' community. Um, if you register online, you will get all the information you need in terms of location, all the things. The Palace Park thing might change. We might have an opportunity to do it a little closer. So again, you can just register on the website and you will get all the information you need. And with that, I am very excited um, to introduce our speaker this morning, Pastor Judy Howard Peterson, uh, someone who has been my pastor for a very long time, ever since North Park, a very long time ago. Um, so we are very glad to have her again with us. And before I invite you up, uh, would you stand, if you are able, for the reading of the scripture? We are in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Amen. You can have a seat and welcome Pastor Judy. Good to be with you again. I wanted to open with a story about my husband and I. Um, before we got married, my husband asked me, um, do you need me for anything? 
I remember responding at the time rather coyly, um, I don't need you, but I really love you. On the morning of 9-11-2001, I was driving home from an out-of-town speaking engagement in Chicago back to Madison, Wisconsin, where I was pastoring. I was listening to NPR on the radio when they announced that a plane had crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. An accident, perhaps. Fifteen minutes later, the second plane crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center, and everyone knew that what was unfolding was not accidental. At that moment, I could not get home to my husband fast enough. With my foot heavy on the accelerator and tears streaming down my face, I remember begging God to do something. I ran up the stairs to our second floor apartment on Willie Street in Madison. I was already sobbing the words as I threw open the door, I need you, I really need you. Yesterday morning on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, I woke up really early to watch the sun come up. Tears streamed down my face as I watched her rise. Maybe the tears were for all that had been lost that day 20 years ago. Or perhaps they're for all that's been lost since. I don't really know. But what I do know is that my prayers yesterday morning were really simple. Oh Lord, I need you. I really need you. And as the sun climbed into the sky, oh Lord, could you help us realize how much we need each other? Let me pray. Lord God, as we gather here this morning, I'm asking for some sort of revelation that we actually need you and that we actually need one another. God, so that we could get past all of our coy responses of like, I love you, but I don't really need you to a point where we could recognize and push the accelerator and get to the community that we actually need. God, I pray that I would be little, that you would be big. I know not all these words are for everybody, but some of them might be. So I pray that you would be the chaperone of all of the words. That you would deliver them to the right people in the right moment. That the emphasis would be on the right syllable. And God, that it would find good soil and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what I could ever ask for or imagine. I don't know how the foolishness of preaching works, Lord. But God, I trust you to be great as we seek to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. For years, I was invited to offer the sermon for Stewardship Sunday. This is the kind of once-of-a-year um, push in a lot of churches to get people to give their resources to the work of the Lord. Now, in white Western capitalist culture, in which I was raised, in which we currently live, uh, where almost everyone is raised to believe that whatever they have earned is rightfully theirs, and that anybody asking for anything about, without having something specific to give us in return is either greedy or lazy, is in on some sort of scam, or pushing some sort of communist or socialist agenda, the once-a-year stewardship sermon has often been one that pastors don't love preaching. 
So they give it to someone who loves to preach and doesn't get that many opportunities. At the time, I fit that bill. And, and to be clear, on this particular Sunday here, Pastor Micah actually told me I could preach whatever I wanted to preach. And I said, can it be Stewardship Sunday? <laughs> because I love talking about giving. Because I believe it is truly good news of great joy for all people when we figure this out. But people do often feel some type of way when we talk about giving and money in the church. And like I said last week when I was with you, when I mentioned that I'm an evangelist, I know that people can get rather flinchy around that word because there's been so much abuse done in the name of evangelism. There's also been a lot of abuse of money in the church. So those flinchy feelings, I know they don't come from nowhere. Still, I believe that giving is good news of great joy for all people. And so I'm going to invite you to listen as those feelings come up. I am never going to be someone who tells you not to listen to your feelings. Because they do tell you something. I mean, it might not be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth that they tell you. But when your emotions are knocking at the door, I think you should always invite them in for tea to at least see why they've shown up. You can decide after tea whether or not you, you invite them to stay the night or you invite them to leave. But I think you should see what they're saying. When I talk about giving this morning, I hope you'll listen to how your emotions and your body responds. But I also hope you'll keep an open heart and mind for anything that God might be speaking to you in the midst of it. Personally, I have found that that sort of listening um, to ourselves while keeping an openness to the fact that there might be something ourselves hasn't heard yet, like this can provide the best climate for growth. Case in point, my husband's uncle John is also a pastor, and he was a chaplain at Northern Michigan University, and he once told me the story from his ministry after John had spoken about giving at a campus event, a young man angrily approached him and said, why does the church always have to talk about money? Emotion, you know, knocking at the door. John is a very wise pastor, and, and he, he knows how to police his emotions and not get defensive when people really dislike what he has to say. Nodding to validate the young man's discomfort, John simply asked, why does it make you angry when the church tries to teach you to be generous? Why does it make you angry? This is the kind of work I believe God is often calling us into. An idea raises an emotion, and if we're able to be a wise pastor to ourselves and to that emotion, it can invite us into a deeper conversation about why it has shown up in front of our door. In our passage today that was just read, um, the Apostle Paul, a leader in the early Christian church, is teaching the Corinthian church a bit about generosity. He's doing that by encouraging them to give to the financially poor Jerusalem church. And actually, in this particular case in Scripture, Paul isn't, um, this isn't just like a first-run message, Stewardship Sunday message. Paul is reminding them that they have previously pledged to do just that, to give. But a year has passed, and they have not fulfilled their promise. They have not kept their word. 
And who hasn't been there? I, I personally have made pledges that, that I have uh, gotten a little bit behind on, where God or someone else has to come up and nudge me a bit, you know, like, didn't you say you were going to do this? And that's what's happening in our text today. And to encourage them to make good on, on what they had previously pledged to do, the Apostle Paul begins by sharing a testimony about another Christian community, the Macedonian church, whose generosity has welled up from within them and spilled out over into the world. In our passage, Paul attributes this outpouring of generosity to their personal connection with the grace of Jesus Christ, who poured himself out on their behalf. I mentioned last week that theologians call this impulse of Jesus a kenotic impulse. It is kenosis. It just means it is a self-emptying impulse that Jesus had. And that the Macedonian church got so connected with, with what was given to them in this self-emptying of Jesus that they wanted to get in on the action. Paul says the Macedonian church's generosity was not in response to a demand or a command. In fact, he even mentions that they were bursting and begging for the opportunity. Paul says their desire to pour out what they had was not because they were told they should. But it happened because their personal experience with a canonic God, a self-emptying Savior, had blessed them so thoroughly, had filled them so much to the full, that it welled up from within them that they wanted to offer unto others what had first been offered unto them. They felt called to a canonic life because they themselves had been blessed by one. Now last week, I challenged those of you who were here to consider why our generosity isn't always welling up from within us. And I asked if you would might maybe be willing to consider whether or not it might be because either you have never been or are not currently connected to a source of supply. Because you see, the way this whole generosity thing is supposed to work among God's people is that it's not meant to be under compulsion or because a command has been given. Stewardship Sunday and all the mixed emotions that come with it were never supposed to be a thing. As the Apostle Paul will go on to say, God loves a cheerful giver. Giving for those of us who are connected to a canonic God is meant to, designed to, well up from within us so that we can't help ourselves but spill over. An impulse to pour out what is being poured into us. A testimony. That's what giving is supposed to be to the connection that we are currently experiencing. The God who loved the whole world so much that he emptied himself of all divine privileges and put on skin to come and walk with us, who gave his own life for us so that we could know abundant life, it's a testimony to that. For Christians, generosity is meant to have a source. And a connection to this source is the only way this outpouring is sustainable. It's been my experience. Now, this is entirely anecdotal here. I've got no statistics for it. I can only say this is my experience. That when I am connected to God for real, that blessing does well up from within me. And when I'm disconnected, which happens, it makes me angry when people want one more thing from me. I can barely even let somebody merge in traffic. Because there is like nothing to give, not even the grace for you to merge. It makes me angry because I don't have much to offer when I'm eking out my own survival in a very dry place. 
place. For Christians, generosity is meant to have a source, and connection to this source is the only way our outpouring is even sustainable at all. And so when the angry emotion rises up, when it knocks at the door of my life, it, it is raising a question for me. I don't just dismiss it and bind it in the name of Jesus and cast it out. I'm like, why are you here? Why does it make me angry that I'm being asked in this moment to give way? Is it a scam? Because then my anger is well discerned and I should listen to it. But it might be a witness to my emptiness and that can be good discernment too. Paul doesn't stop at how this generosity is meant to work. He also articulates and goes on to articulate what it will look like if we are operating in this particular design. In verse 13 through 15 in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says this, Our desire is not that others might be relieved, well, you all are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. One of the very practical ways that the early church tried to witness to their experience with this canonic God was to share things in common. We read this in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, that the believers were actually sharing everything in common. It says they sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. And it goes on to say that the watching world understood that this was such good news that they're like, I want to get on this thing, in on this thing that you guys are doing. Now again, as I said last week, as I said again this morning, this sharing of life, it was not a command. They were not commanded to share everything in common. It was the result of the grace of God that they had personally experienced, welling up from within them, seeking a way to give voice to what they experienced. And I think it is absolutely no coincidence here that the sharing everything in common happened right after Pentecost. The radical outpouring of God's spirit onto God's people. They were so full up, they're like, stuff to share. Sharing everything in common was a canonic witness to an outpouring they had received. And it didn't last very long, this sharing everything in common. Making the sharing of everything's in common a law or a command, it's going to suck the life right out of it. I'm not saying good things can't happen that way, but it won't be as lifey as it's meant to be. My taxes, they do some good things. I actually really believe in taxes. I know that people always want to lower theirs, but I actually think there's no way that I would be this generous to the education system. I don't even have kids. There's no way that I would give this much to Medicare. I'm not on it. There's no way I'm paying for everybody else's roads and bridges. But my taxes do some of those good things. Education, healthcare, safety nets, infrastructure. But you don't hear a lot of people when they get that tax, it's like, ah, this is good news and great joy for all people. Let me get in on that. Because the compelling piece is not what the giving accomplishes, but the joy that the believers experienced in the giving. That was what was compelling. And this is just a tiny testimony from my week. Last week, my husband was waiting um, for something in the mail. And it was a, a critical thing for our life. 
And uh, it was um, a UPS shipment. You know, it was a two-day shipment. But, you know, they, get, they can have all the fullness of two days to deliver, right? And uh, if we... Um, um, had known that we needed it at that time. I mean, we would have made some plan. But anyway, it was kind of a mistake that we made, but we really needed this package to show up. Before 10.30 when my husband had to leave for work. No, UPS has the whole day. I texted him in the morning. I said, husband, I'm really praying for the UPS guy. I'm praying that he just, you are first on his route, that he's super faithful. I don't even know how prayer works. I mean, God's got a lot going on. But I'm just praying that the UPS package shows up. And it did. I mean, I don't know if God had his hand in it at all or her hand. I mean, I don't even know. But I was so grateful that the package showed up that if, if I had been there, I would have thanked the UPS guy so inappropriately, there would have been no six feet. I mean, I would have thrown my arms around this guy. And all week, because I received this mercy, this grace that this package came that really was important to us, I had this, like, gratitude hanging out right here. Gratitude for a UPS guy right filled up to the brim of my life. And so a few days later, when out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of those big brown trucks. They were going the opposite way, but I'm like, UPS! And so I did this U-turn, and I chased down the UPS guy when he was pulling over at the next stop, and I pulled onto the side of this rural road, and I jumped out, and I said, oh my gosh, you are not the person who delivered my package. He's like, okay. I said, you're not the person who delivered this package to my husband. In fact, the UPS guy that delivered this package to my husband is in a different state. But that UPS guy delivered a package to my husband last week. And in fact, it even arrived early and it really mattered to the events that followed. It was a grace to us that it arrived at 1030 in the morning. And I've just been wanting to thank a UPS guy for what you do. And to let you know that even though you might not know, that you might be delivering grace to people. Your work really matters, I said. And this guy, this big smile broke out on his face. He wasn't wearing a mask. And he said, um, I believe you just made my entire day. Joyless giving, it can still accomplish some good things. But I'm telling you that U-turn taking, um, shoulder parking, welling up joy giving, I mean, it can make people's entire day. And as the scripture proclaims, the goal was not for one to suffer in their giving, to bless somebody else, but so that everybody could be equally blessed This was the witness to the kind of God they were following. They were bearing witness to a canonic God, one who for the joy set before him gave up his life. And so it's best done by people who joyfully participate in kenosis, self-emptying. And many Christians have poured out this type of canonic life as a way to bear witness to Jesus. They've been doing that for years, um, but they're not joyful. And and a dutiful commitment to to giving. I mean, it still does good stuff. I mean, you know, I I want you to do that, but but it kind of lacks something, you know? It's kind of like when your your mom said to you, you know, you have to go to this birthday party, and then you told the kid, you know, my mom made me come and give you this present. Like, ooh, really brightening my whole day. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. 
And this is really an, a really important part of the passage for us to take in. Because as Christians, when we think of whom we are representing, we often think of Jesus as a solitary individual. As Christians, we're like, I'm following Jesus. I, I say that all the time. I'm a follower of Jesus. And we try to mirror the behaviors of this canonic Christ without understanding the fuller image of God that we are meant to bear. Perichoresis is the term that theologians use to describe the fuller revelation. The relationship of a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, a God who is three in one, often described as a divine dance, perichoresis. And we believe that within the trinity, there are no power struggles between them, there are no hierarchies among them, there are no lasts or firsts, no inequalities in the middle of them. All their resources are shared in common in the Trinity. Perichoresis is a theological word that describes this active sharing. The Father pours out to the Son and the Spirit. The, the, the Son pours out to the Spirit and the Father. The Spirit pours out to the Father and the Son. Each one constantly emptying themselves out but none of them ever empty because the other two are always pouring into them. I need you. I really need you. <laughs> this maybe would be how the Trinity whispers to each other. We're seeking to bear the image not just of Jesus, but of a triune God. You, you may be able to mirror the lifestyle of Jesus as an individual. You might make a good run at that, but you will not be able to sustain the life of Christ without a community. Jesus did not, and we will not be able to. People of God, the Church of Jesus Christ is not about a bunch of individuals who bear some resemblance to Jesus. It's about a community that behaves in a sustained manner, like the God in whose image we were made. No power struggles between us, no hierarchies among us, no last, for no one believes they are first or supreme. No equalities in the middle of us, for the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Our resources are meant to be shared in common, perichoresis. And I want to tell you today that kenosis, without an understanding and commitment to perichoresis, Self-emptying without understanding that you need to be connected to things that pour into you will always leave you bitter and empty. And it can accomplish some good things. But it is not an accurate witness of Jesus. And just a reminder, the early church, they were not seeking to be like communist or socialist or woke or progressive when they sought this equality among them. And neither are we. Even though people bring that sort of accusation. But we do this because we are seeking to be orthodox to our origins. A God who is three in one. A God who is pouring out into the other for all eternity. And this was never meant to be, just so we're clear, a give till it hurts sort of experience. There, there is too much room for abuse in that sort of theology for me. This is give because you are part of a community that doesn't want anyone to hurt. Including you. We give because it creates the world 
in which we want to live. A world where there are fewer power struggles between us, less hierarchies within us, where we don't want anyone to be last, nor are we striving uh, to be first if it would leave others behind. A world where there are fewer inequalities in the midst of us because our resources are generously being shared in common among us. Perichoresis. Now, I could end my sermon here, but I want to take the remainder of my time to address one more underlying message. A message that I believe is spoken in this passage, although not as overtly as the others. I mentioned towards the beginning of the message today that the Apostle Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church is not the initial ask, but this is a follow-up. The Corinthian church had previously pledged to give, but a year later had not kept its word. They had not followed through. So he says, so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. And here is my judgment, Paul goes on to say, about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have a desire to do so. Now finish. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. The health of the Jerusalem church... It is hinging upon the generosity of the other churches in the area, but something else is hinging upon the Corinthian church. The, 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 the Apostle Paul is urging the church to be who they said they would be. The Apostle Paul is reminding them that their word is meant to matter. In short, it's important, he says, for us to be who we says we is. Now, you don't have to be more than you is. And that's important for some of you to hear. Our passage clearly says, according to your means. But we shouldn't be less than who we say we is. Because when we pledge that we are one kind of people, and then we don't be that kind of people, rather than people asking us about the hope that we have, they begin to wonder about what kind of hypocrisy we have. The Apostle Paul is reminding the Corinthian church that pledges are great, but being a people of our word is where the real witness comes in. Now, most of the time, I consider myself a fairly decent person. I mean, I do try to do the right thing. Um, I try to be generous on every occasion. And even though I don't know exactly how it works, I totally pray without ceasing, or at least groan in the presence of God. <laughs> and even though I don't read the Bible in the same way I used to read it, I love hanging out with the word of God. And I try to let people know that God loves them at every turn. I recycle. And if you look at me from a distance, kind of squinty-like, you know, I think I do all right. I am a decent person. But like most people, I have a tendency to tell lies. Or at least half-truths. I mean, how often have I lied to my husband saying, I'll be home in a minute, when there is absolutely no chance that's happening? How often have I lied to myself? Tomorrow I'm going to give up sugar and white flour and go for a run. <laughs> right. How often have I told the telemarketer who calls my house, I am not Judy Peterson. <laughs> I don't know her. She no longer lives here. You have got the wrong number. Or half-truths to the guy at the intersection with the sign. Oh, no, sorry, I don't have any money. I mean, it's usually true I don't have any cash, but I could get some. The full truth if I would let it knock at my door, is I have the money, but it would be an inconvenience 
to me to go get it, and I don't want to be inconvenienced. Or when we say we're fine and we're not, or we say we'll be there and we have no intention to show up, it just gets the pressure off. You may think these are just small things of little consequence and maybe even a little bit of funny, a little uh, bit funny, necessary ways of actually making it through life that it would be far more complicated if we were all telling the truth about every little thing. But you see, now when I tell my husband I'll be home, I have to say I promise. Or when, when I tell people I'm going to get in shape, I have to add for real this time. Or trust me, or this time will be different, or I swear to God it's true. And I don't like that I have to add those phrases. Because adding these phrases means that my word actually cannot stand on its own. That it's gotten a little bit flimsy. Why do you think they swear people in when they testify in court? Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? We have to say, okay, this is for real here. Here you really have to tell the truth. This courtroom isn't just like your everyday walking around life. Here you have to be a person of your word. We do this because our words no longer have much weight to them. In fact, we throw them around as if they kind of weigh almost nothing at all. Oz Guinness He's a well-known social critic. He calls this the inflation of words. Perhaps if you are an economics or business major uh, or work in this sort of realm, this will make more sense to you because you understand monetary inflation. When there's a lot of money on the market, each dollar becomes worth less. Or you need more dollars to get and purchase the same thing. Os Guinness says the same thing has happened with our words. There is just so many of them on the market these days that they have become worth less. Books, blogs, posts, tweets, texts, a thousand news shows, a million advertisements, perhaps too many sermons, blah, 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 blah. Words seem to have lost some of their meaning. They seem to be worth less. So we say them louder or we try to convince people that even though we didn't tell the truth before, that this time around what we're saying is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, for real, for real, so help us God, blah, 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 weightless, worthless words so often. And I believe that this has created a, a sort of cynicism, a distrust. Maybe initially it was just around advertisements and political ads or certain subjects and in particular situations. But eventually, I think that cynicism has begun to, to, to be around just about anything with words. We begin to think that all words are empty. Super easy to find ourselves getting really suspicious about what anybody says. And we can even be in church watching other people sing worship songs like I surrender all or Jesus be the center, I give myself away or whatever. And we watch people and we think, oh, they totally don't even mean what they're singing. We get cynical. We listen to preachers and speakers, and we don't take them at their word either. We know that. I know that. So we speak louder. We try to keep your attention, the right amount of humor, maybe a video clip, a juicy personal story, or we add in, like, trust me, I assure you, for real, for real. It is perhaps good to know that the inflation of words is nothing new. Paul, uh, we know this because Jesus addresses the issue of weightless, worthless words even before Paul does in one of his very first sermons. Matthew 5, through 37, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the New Living Translation. It says, you've also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. Jesus says, but I say to you, don't make any vows. 
Do not say by heaven because God, heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes I will or no I won't. Anything beyond that is from the evil one. These instructions come from the Sermon on the Mount. This is the message he's giving at the beginning of his ministry where he offers in, hey, this is my core teaching. Don't murder, don't, don't, uh, don't break covenants, don't commit adultery, don't take revenge, uh, love your enemies, give to the needy, pray for God's presence, don't worship money, don't judge, bear fruit, put God's words into practice. Right before being faithful, um, and, and, um, um, or right after being faithful, and right before, like don't take revenge, <laughs> is be a person of your word. This is how important it is. Between faithfulness and forgiveness is let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus says, you have heard that you should carry out vows that you swear before God, but I don't even want you making any of these vows. You shouldn't need to swear to anything. Just a simple yes or no should be enough because you are going to be the people whose words mean something when you say them, who are living a life of such integrity and honesty and sincerity that when you say, yes, I will, People lean into that because you always do what you say you will. Or when you say, no, I won't, people should be able to believe you beyond the shadow of a doubt because you never do what you say you won't. This is one of Jesus' core teachings for those who want to actually be his disciples. Right after being faithful in marriage and right before refusing to take revenge, between faithfulness and forgiveness, biggies, Jesus says, now be a person of your word. Now, I want to be clear about this. This call, this commission, this command, it is not about legalism. This is not about saying, well, you better not lie because it's a sin and God hates sinners. That's not the point. The point of the Sermon on the Mount and the call to live differently than the world around you is so that people will come to know the kind of God you believe in. That's why Jesus says at the very beginning, you're the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out before um, people for all to see so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. The Sermon on the Mount is not about legalism. It's not about you and I trying to measure up to a law or a command. This is about you and I living out the love of Jesus Christ in a way that points other people to a particular type of God, a God who is a God of God's word. I'm working to become a person of my word. I'm trying not to get used to half-truths, and I'm seeking to be more diligent, not because lying is a sin, but because being believable is super important if I want to bear witness to a believable God. I want to be a person of my word so that people will be able to believe my witness and trust my testimony, rely on my words when I preach and teach and prophesy. And I don't want to have to say for real, for real, or I promise this time, or I swear to God. I want to be a person of my word. And I'm telling you, if we all decided to do that, it would be a pretty recognizable way for us to stand apart from what's going on in the world. I mean, think about what it would look like for us to become the believable people? What if we, the people of God, became the people who are always true to our words? If we became the people in this world that could be trusted to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, not just when we're called to testify, but in our walking around life, 
We would really shine out and bring some light into the darkness in this world. Paul was saying to the Corinthian church, and I'm saying to this church here today, we need to become believable people. Because God is inviting us to proclaim an unbelievable story. Unbelievable means you can't believe it. God is inviting us to share an unbelievable story. And if we are not the most believable people on the planet, if our words are not truly trustworthy, how can we expect people to believe unbelievable news that we have to share? Because it is unbelievable. God created the world by speaking, and it was good and very good. It's unbelievable, really. There was once a child born in a manger who was actually a god who put on skin. It's unbelievable. That baby grew up and began to do miracles. He made water turn into wine. He made a blind guy see by putting mud in his face. A dead girl, he told her to get up, and she did. He multiplied lunch for one into lunch for 5,000. He walked on water, and once in a storm, he's like, be still, and it was. It is all unbelievable. And later in his life, this guy, Jesus, who didn't even have a home and who hung out with all the wrong kind of people, declared that he was God in the flesh and that anyone who believed in him could have an abundant life and even more than that, everlasting life. It really is unbelievable. I never even heard of such a thing. And that what Jesus said made some people so, so really mad that they beat Jesus up and they spit on him and they hung him on a cross and they put some nails through his hands and through his feet and they mocked him. It was awful what they did to him. But he looked at them after all that awful torture and he's like, I totally forgive you. What? It is unbelievable. And then he died, which if you saw what he did, they did to him is quite believable actually. But then the craziest thing is that three days later, he was raised from the dead. He woke up, he like took off his grave clothes and he just stood up and walked back into life. Unbelievable. And he wasn't just a spirit or a ghost. Jesus actually went around and let people touch him. He shared meals with people. And it wasn't just a few people. It says 500 people saw him. Unbelievable, really. A dead guy back to life. And then after 40 days, Jesus told all his followers that he would give them his spirit and, and he would, uh, they would be able to do greater things than he had done. What? It's unbelievable. And he said he's going to come back and that when he does, there'll be no more death and no more dying and no more pain. There'll be no more tears, no more sadness. Absolutely everything will be made good and very good again. When I look around, I can't even believe it. It's unbelievable to me. Which means God needs some really believable people people who will keep their word, people who will be believable in their walking around life so that perhaps maybe some people will be able to trust that we're not making this stuff up. I believe God is calling us to become a particular type of people, a people who are willing to be generous on every occasion because we believe in a God who is and we're connected to that source, a people who are willing to live a canonic life because we believe in a God who poured out God's life for love for the world. A people who are connected to, to each other because we believe in a God who is a community so connected that they are three in one. I need you. I really need you. A people who want to bear witness to this God by creating a world of equality. A people who don't just say empty words, but follow through with what we've pledged so that we might become believable enough that people might even become, be, be able to believe 
our unbelievable story. Let me pray. God, on this weekend where we acknowledge um, a moment in our national history that was a tragedy that brought people together to a place where we said, we need you, we really need you. God, we say, we wonder where, what happened to that. <laughs> where did that go? So few of us think we need one another anymore. But God, we want to come today and, and, and just say, Man, I think we might need you. We've been sitting by this well that's so dry, burned out and bitter, mad at even having to give way when somebody merges. So God, we say today, we need you. We really need you. And God, I pray from that place uh, of needing you that we might also come to want to bear witness to, to the kind of dependence that we have on one another, the interdependence. God, may we be a community where the one who gathers much never has too much and the one who gathers little never has too, middle, too, too little. God, may we be a community that has no power struggles between us, no hierarchies within us, where there's no first and never a last where we all want to share things in common because your spirit has been poured out upon us in such a generous way. And God, could you teach us about half-truths and small lies, these little ways that we think don't matter for nothing, but they teach a world not to trust us with our unbelievably good news. Help us be honest. Help us not say that we are more than what we are, so we don't become hypocrites. Help us not be less than what we said we were going to be. God, so that we might become the most believable people for this unbelievably good news of great joy for all people. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we are going to take a moment of silence um, and respond in song. Uh, over the past, gosh, year and a half, uh, while we weren't gathering, we had created a rhythm uh, where communion is a part of our worship response together, a, a tethering. So if that has uh, become important for you, that is available on either side. Um, so during this last song, if you want to come forward and receive that, there's red wine and white grape juice. Uh, all the bread is gluten-free. Uh, if you do participate in that, receive these words. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. Now for a moment of silence, would you pray with me? God, would you meet us? in ways that we need? Would you meet us in comfortable quiet if we need that? Would you meet us with a word if we need that? In your name we pray. Amen. As we come to a table of a generous God, a God who became broken bread and poured out wine for us, 
May we go forth from here wanting to pour that broken bread and poured out wine back into the world. Before you leave, can I invite you to stand and receive a benediction? I always invite people to lift up your heads and receive the benediction. And it's because I, I think there should be at least one time during the week where you just know that God wants to bless you. Um, no head hanging, no nothing, <laughs> just blessing. And so now as you go on your way, may the God who loved the whole world so much that they couldn't stay away. So they put on skin to come and walk with us. May this God, whom we believe we see most clearly in the person of Jesus, the Christ, go before you to guide the way into a life where I need you, I really need you, are not just words said in a moment of crisis, but said regularly as a testimony to the kind of community we are creating. May this God go behind you to encourage you to live a joyfully canonic life because you have come to know such a deep connection with an unending source. May this God be above you, to watch over you, keeping you from power struggles between you, hierarchies among you, so that you could truly become a community where we are all equal. May this God go beside you as your most intimate traveling companion. May you learn from Jesus what it looks like to be a person of your word. And may this God go within you to give you the peace that passes all understanding. This is a peace that makes no sense at all. The peace that comes when the unbelievable news of God, a God who loves the whole world, becomes believable to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go in peace. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.